sunny July afternoon, an 11-year-old began her one-mile walk home from summer school and never made it. It took over 45 years and a dedicated police department to solve her case. This is the case of the 1973 abduction and murder of Linda Ann O'Keefe. Welcome back to The Ties That Find. I am your host, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming back and sharing your time with me again. I really appreciate all the interactions that we're getting on the socials, and I appreciate all the the listens and the likes. Um, The best thing you can do for the podcast is really just to share it. So if you're liking what you hear, if you could share it with a family or friend, and I really thank you for that. And of course, um, like I said, interact with me on social media and let me know what you think about our cases. I am often asking myself, like, Was genealogy really the last resort for this crime? Or maybe was there something that the police department could have done back in the day to solve the case sooner? So I'm really interested in your thoughts. So let me know. If you'd like to donate to the show, you can do so right now at Buy Me a Coffee. And right now I am just looking to be able to cover the cost of producing the show. And we'd also, of course, like to be able to make a donation to the DNA Doe Project on behalf of our little community here. I'm also looking to create a few tiers on Patreon before the end of the year. It's very exciting being creative, thinking of different things to offer. So definitely let me know the kind of perks that you're interested in, because I for sure want to align all the goodies with what you, dear listener, would like to receive. I forgot. I keep forgetting. I'm always forgetting. I have actually like one of those Linktree things, but it's not Linktree. It's bio.link forward slash TTTF. It's the link that's in my Instagram profile. So just tap that and you'll be able to see all the links for the, you've got the, the Apple podcast, the Spotify, the, the Gmail, if you want to email me, the website for the show notes, that's where it'll bring you directly to the blog part of the website that, that goes into the sources and the photos for each episode. Um, there's also, you know, the Instagram itself, and then there's the Twitter and the, and the Facebook So definitely check that out. That's where you're going to be able to see all the direct links for everything that we have relating here, including buy me a coffee. Our source shout out goes to the Newport Beach Police Department for their 2018 Twitter feed about Linda's case. So with that, let's get into it. Today, we're going to be in Newport Beach, California. Linda was abducted from Corona Del Mar, a neighborhood in Newport Beach, and eventually found in another part of the city. So I figure I'll give you the rundown of Newport itself. Newport Beach is in Orange County on the south coast of California, which is sandwiched just between L.A. to the north and San Diego County to the south. Newport covers 53 square miles and today has a population of about 85,000 people. Back in the 70s, where our story takes place, Newport Beach had 53,000 residents. Thriller and suspense novelist Dean Kuntz lives here, and many of his books are set here as well. Aside from the beautiful beaches that the county boasts, it is also home to Disneyland, located in Anaheim, another city in Orange County. And now we're going to talk about Linda. Linda Ann O'Keefe was the middle of three girls born to Richard and Barbara O'Keefe on May 24th, 1962. Her older sister, Cindy, was seven years older than her, and her younger sister, Diana, was two years younger. Linda was very interested in all things creative. She was a bright, loving girl. Linda loved piano. 
She was a gifted painter, her mom says, and other all sorts of other types of crafts. Linda was also well-liked, even though she was pretty shy when it came to meeting new people. She was a member of her local Girl Scout troop and often spent time at their local youth center. According to mom, she was also very eager to please. Linda would constantly make sure her bedroom was clean and tidy. And every time she was done cleaning up, she would ask mom to come in and check on it just to be sure that it was done right. Linda also loved going to the beach. She loved playing in the waves and laying out in the sun. And the beach was really close to the family home. It was just like a few blocks down the street. So this year in 1973, when Linda's about 11 years old, mom and dad decide to start giving her some independence and they let her go back down there by herself to the shore a few times. She's also described as a very sensitive girl. A few months before she was abducted, one of the family's cats had passed away, and this was an especially devastating loss for Linda. Her older sister, Cindy, tells us, quote, I remember she was an old soul. When we'd go camping, she was like the frog whisperer. We'd be trying to chase these frogs and get them, but she would walk up very gently and then pick them up like they just knew that she was a safe person to go with, unquote. But it's going to be on Friday, July 6th, 1973, that Linda's going to be taken away. Now, on the 45th anniversary of Linda's murder in 2018, the Newport Beach Police Department tweeted throughout the day of the events that took place that Friday and Saturday so many years earlier. So this is the timeline that we get. Linda was enrolled in summer school that summer, and normally she would ride her bike to and from school because it was only like a mile away. But on this day, her piano teacher offered to pick her up and she accepted. The school day started just fine, and Linda actually had four classes that day. Once the first class gets out, she's got a little break, and then she moves on to the second class. By now, though, she's getting a little hungry, and she decides to walk over to the nearby market to get a snack between second and third period. The last class of the day goes out without a hitch, and all Linda can think about is getting home and having some weekend fun. She had hoped to hang out with a friend all weekend, but her parents had shot that down. You see, her friend Kathy's parents have a boat, and since everybody lives by the shore, they were going to take it out for the weekend, and they were looking to leave Kathy behind. And the girls were hoping that Kathy could sleep over Linda's house tonight on Friday night. But Linda's parents had nixed the idea, so now Linda isn't sure what she's going to do this weekend. And all of a sudden, the bell is ringing, and school is out, and Linda doesn't have a plan to get home. Because she didn't talk to her mother that morning about what, what was going to happen when school got out, and she doesn't have her bike because she was driven to school by the piano teacher. So what do you do when school is out and you don't want to walk and you know mom and dad are at home? You call home, of course. So Linda goes to the main office and asks the secretary if she can call home so she can get a ride. But the secretary tells her, maybe your mom's already on her way. Just give a few minutes and see if she shows up. Go wait outside for her. And this totally sounds familiar, doesn't it? For those who grew up in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, all before all the cell phones and you having your own call, phone to call your mom and dad when you want to, how many times did we have to ask the secretary in the main office to use the school phone? I actually remember kids lining up outside my main office in my elementary school, and now you'd hear things like, can I go to Andrea's house? I don't want to walk in the rain. Can you come get me? You know, they gave us our art projects. I can't carry this volcano all by myself all the way home. Please, please, please come get me. Getting back. Now, Linda knows that her mom's not coming because they didn't make that plan when Linda left the house four hours ago. But the secretary says no, and we don't talk back to authority figures. So Linda goes outside. She decides to kill some time by going back to Richard's Market 
to hang out for a little bit before she goes back to the main office. That's where she was over there. And she picked up gum earlier between classes. And she passes a few classmates on the sidewalk as they're leaving the store. And one of them is her friend named Barbara. And they exchange hellos. And after they pass Linda, Barbara looks back and she sees a turquoise van driving alongside Linda. But she can't tell if Linda is like talking to anyone in the van. She just sees a van that's like kind of like right, right alongside her as she's walking on the sidewalk. And then Linda makes it back to school. And this time she's allowed to call home. But mom and Cindy are working on a sewing project together and mom doesn't want to get pulled away from it. So she tells Linda, listen, you're old enough. You can walk home. But this is not the answer that Linda wanted. And she gets upset and she even starts kind of crying and whimpering right there in the main office. And I feel for her. I mean, I lived a mile away from my elementary school growing up. We didn't get the bus in my neighborhood and I had to walk home every day. And it was the worst part of my day. And I would sometimes do the same thing. I would just lollygag out front because I didn't want to walk home and I'd procrastinate because walking home is boring, right? I mean, it's boring when you don't have friends to walk with. So I totally get it. But in 2021, my mom brain, if my kid were to call me and say, hey, can you come pick me up? I would say what Barbara said. It's a mile. You'll be home in 20 minutes. You'd be home by now if you started walking as soon as the bell rang. Get over it. Tragically, though, we don't know if Linda would be here today if she had just started walking home right after school. We don't know how long that turquoise van was hanging around Linda's elementary school. And we don't know when its driver spotted Linda for the first time. She's off the phone. She's leaving the main office. She's upset, sniffling. She's pouting. She's on the front curb of the school building, and she's just not looking to go home right away. And then finally, she decides got to get home and I got to use my own two feet. So she starts walking and Linda's going to make it three blocks from school before the man in the turquoise van pulls up to her again. She's now on the corner of Inlet Drive and Marguerite Avenue and a young lady named Janine and her mom are driving by and they see a girl that matches Linda's description talking to the driver of the van. They see a passenger side door is open There's a man in the driver's seat, and it looks like Linda is standing there on the sidewalk talking to him. When they pass them, Janine's mother gets this gut feeling that she doesn't like, and she decides to turn the corner and then wait for the van to pass by, telling Janine to take down the plate number as it passes. But when the van drives away, it continues straight on Marguerite Avenue, and they're not going to get the plate number after all. And they can't be sure if there was anyone in the passenger seat. And now all of this is going to be discovered later that night when Janine talks to police once the search for Linda begins. All mom and Cindy and the little sister know that afternoon is that Linda was walking home and they are going back to their sewing project. A few hours pass by and they start wondering out loud where Linda is. Now let's remember, Linda is 11 years old and puberty is starting to rear its ugly head. So lately in the O'Keefe family, if she got upset at mom or dad, She would do little things to exert her will, didn't we all? One of these things was not coming home right away when she was told to. So now at this point, it's been three hours and mom and Cindy are starting to think, well, she should be home by now. If anything, she's going to be hungry for lunch. I mean, maybe if she met up with a friend, sure, that would delay her, but we should have heard from her by now. So they start calling around the neighborhood to Linda's friends, but no one says they saw her after they all left school that day. And then dad, Richard, gets home from work later on, and he asks where his daughter is. 
Barbara tells him the story about Linda's temper tantrum and that she was supposed to be home by now, but she's not. So Richard and Cindy, Cindy's about 18 at this time, and she's able to drive. They decide that they're each going to take a family car and scope out the neighborhood to find her. Right now, they're more in the mindset that Linda is still pissed off about having to walk home from school and not that she was taken involuntarily. So they're going to check the youth center nearby. They're going to check where the Girl Scout meetings are. They're going to check any other place that they think Linda might hang out in their general neighborhood. But when Richard and Sydney come home without her, then they decide that it's time to call the police. 911 gets the call around 6.30 p.m. And just as they should, they begin searching. Any officer that is not already occupied with some other call or disturbance is now being directed to the search for missing Linda Ann O'Keefe. She is four feet tall, 85 pounds, has long brown hair and blue eyes. She's wearing a white dress with blue flowers on it and a green ski jacket over it. And she's got a red and blue Americana print messenger bag with her. Dad and Cindy hit the streets again in the family cars and mom stays home with the little sister to continue making phone calls. Now, back in the 70s, Corona Del Mar had a lot more empty land than it does now. And so they're going to be going door to door by Linda's house, but they're also going to be checking local fields, checking woods, marshes. They're getting in their patrol cars. They're in the woods on horseback. Helicopters are flying overhead. They're even in boats out on the water. The time is passing and no one is finding her. So there is a short-lived theory that maybe Linda is a stowaway on her friend's family's boat. Maybe Kathy went on that trip with her parents after all. And maybe Linda was upset at her parents enough to get on the boat without telling them. So police check out the marina. They find the boat slip of the family, interview the boaters nearby. And they say, yeah, the parents were here. They did pull out from the bay a few hours ago, but we didn't see any kids. There were no kids on there. They were just adults. Now, this might be a dead end, but Barbara is hoping that the boaters are wrong and Linda is safe and sound with Kathy's family, albeit in a shit ton of trouble when she gets home. But they need to see this theory to the end. So police call over to Catalina Harbor, where the boat was expected to show up tonight, and explain the situation. They tell the marina attendants to let them know when they show up because they need to know if Linda is with them. Janine shows up at the O'Keefe home after hearing about the little girl going missing, and she tells police what she and her mother had seen earlier in the day. Anger turns to worry, and Barbara and Richard are starting to think the worst. Barbara makes sure to tell police that her daughter is a sweet, shy girl who would never have voluntarily stayed away from home for anything like this length of time. So now police, of course, they're going to be looking for this blue-green turquoise van. And the driver was a man. 20 to 30, white, but so were like thousands of residents of the Corona Del Mar area at the time. So the van is going to be their best bet. At this point, though, it's getting late and there's only so much that they can do with the little information that they have, but they're going to continue searching through the night. Mom and dad, they get no sleep that night, of course, but they are still told to stay at home. The girls go to bed. We got the little one who's like nine and a half, 10 years old, and she likely doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. And then older sister, Cindy, she's expected to be at work at the dry cleaners the next morning. And so she's a little bit worried, but she's not really as panicked as mom and dad are. She ultimately thinks it really is just Linda being a brat. The next morning, police and search and rescue teams are getting ready to change out shifts. The searchers who work all night are going home and a new crew is coming in to take over the search. 
And over in the O'Keefe's neighborhood, there's a man named Ron Yao, and he's packing up his four-year-old son to meet with some friends on their bikes near Back Bay in Newport Beach, just a few miles away. They are planning a nature outing and are looking for a good spot to observe frogs in their natural habitat when the nature hike takes place. And Ron is the man that discovers Linda's body just three miles from her home. Just before 10 a.m., Ron and his friends had split up from each other, each going in a different direction, and they're scouring the marsh for frogs and other interesting things to point out on their trail walk. And then Ron notices something not brown or green among the leaves and the fallen trees. He looks closer and realizes that he's looking at a hand and then an arm. And then he realizes he's looking at the whole body of a little girl. First, he calls out to her, hoping that maybe she'll wake up, and then she doesn't. And so he starts yelling for his buddies, and they rush over from wherever they are, and they see what Ron is seeing. Right away, they realize this must be the little girl that had gone missing last night, and they all get on their bikes to go get the police. Soon enough, they come up on a police car with an officer who is, of course, out looking for Linda, and they tell him what they found. And with that, Linda O'Keefe is no longer missing. Linda was found fully clothed, still wearing her coat with her red and blue messenger bag nearby. She had been strangled, and even though police won't release this information to the public for 15 years, she had been sexually assaulted. And the O'Keefe's are devastated. Who wouldn't be? And now the police are looking for a killer, no longer searching for a little girl. So like we said, we've got this van, and then we've got a young white guy that we're looking for. But Janine and her mother have a pretty good detailed description of the driver that, of that van. So police do come up with an interesting profile sketch of the piece of shit that lured Linda into that van the day before. He's relatively thin. He's got short brown curly hair, a long face, droopy eyes, and he's tan skinned. And we have a few more details about the van too. It's late 60s, early 70s model, but the make is unknown. The turquoise blue is a little darker than a SOARS service vehicle which doesn't help us in 2021. I searched it. We don't know what that is. But we're sure that it did make sense back in 1973 in California. For the body, it has two doors in the back that open up like banquet doors, just like we have nowadays. The license plate is on the left side door, and there are no windows on the sides of the van, aside from the front doors. Shocker. Police are going at this investigation of full force. We have an 11-year-old girl snatched off the street, literally walking home from school, walking from one safe haven to the next. So the area where Linda's body was discovered was scoured for any additional evidence. All possible interviews were made. Local sex offenders were looked into. And law enforcement did everything that their 1970s protocol taught them, or rather allowed them, to do. And they find out the lady that lived within earshot of where Linda's body was found is that she had heard something strange the night before. Sometime before midnight, she heard what sounded like a girl's voice and it was screaming, stop, you're hurting me. And she told police that she heard it, but she wasn't sure if she heard right. So she stood still and she perked her ears up and then she didn't hear anything else. So she went about her business. And this is exactly what happened in Christine Jessup's case. So can we all just make a solemn vow today to not let this happen in our lives? Let's do it. We're all going to hold up our right hands right now. I'm waiting. Repeat after me. I 
insert your name here, Rachel Coco, do solemnly swear that if I ever hear through my kitchen window what sounds like a person, especially a person with a childlike voice screaming, stop, you're hurting me, I will call the police. We good? So police get this information. They're looking for the van. They're looking for a young guy. They're looking for someone in the area. And within two days, yes, two days, folks, police pick up a suspect. He's young. He just graduated from high school nearby. He lives in the same neighborhood as the O'Keefe's, and he lives alone. So they're thinking that he has opportunity and space and time. Police grill him for seven hours. He doesn't give anything up. And within a few days, they decided to give up. They rule him out. The department realizes pretty quickly that they didn't even have any real evidence against him. And they're really just barking up the wrong tree. And then sadly, as it went for too, too many murders in the 20th century, Linda's murder case suddenly went cold. The Newport Beach Police Department actively worked it for as long as they could. But even if it was open, they weren't getting any kind of new information that could bring them closer to a suspect. So it was open, but it was cold. And let's keep in mind, the Newport Beach Police did have semen evidence on the piece of shit that ripped this little girl from her family and the community. But it was 1973, and clearly they didn't know what to do with it. We are happy, though, that they knew enough like so many of the police departments that we talk about in true crime, they did know enough to keep it around. Preserve the clothes or the slides of the bodily fluids found during an autopsy. Yes, put them in a box, put them on a shelf, in the fridge, lock them up, whatever you have to do, save it. Because one day you might be able to do something with it. And that's what they did here. Thank God. In the meantime, over the next year and through to the end of 1974, the local press-telegram newspaper out of Long Beach, California, included Linda's case in its weekly summary of requests for secret witnesses. There's a $2,000 reward for information leading to a conviction for her case, and that's about $12,000 today, which isn't too bad because they started the fund like within four weeks after she was murdered. Unfortunately, this did not lead to any promising tips or leads, but the idea is pretty cool, and I just figured I'd share it with you here. The weekly page is pretty much in the vein of Crime Stoppers, right? Please submit a tip, and if your tip helps catch a criminal, you'll get a monetary reward. But the Secret Witnesses campaign is very clear. We don't want to know your name. In fact, there are instructions on each weekly page on how to submit your tip. So I'll just read it here. Quote, do not sign your name. Instead, select a code name for yourself any name as long as it's not your own, and place it and a code number at the bottom of your letter. The code number should combine three letters and three numbers in any combination. Tear off and keep a corner of the last page with your code name and number on it, and then mail your letter to the secret witness at this address. I mean, I guess the reasoning is once they get the tip, if police find it credible and they're looking to get in touch with you and or the paper is ready to give you your reward, It is only then that you should come forward. They'll probably stick something in the paper or make an announcement somewhere. And then at that point, you prove that you're the person that submitted the tip by presenting the torn corner of the page from the letter that you sent in. Pretty smart. I do not know the success rate of this program, but there you have it. I thought it was pretty cool. But man, they did not want to know 
who were sending in those tips. They probably thought they were going to be too tempted to publish it. Anyway, decades go by, and it might seem that Linda's case has been forgotten, at least in the newspapers. Mom died in 2005, and Dad died in 2008. Sadly, they will not be able to see justice for their daughter here on Earth. And I'm sure by now, police are going with the theory that the man who abducted, raped, and murdered Linda must have been a stranger. Sure, she was shy. And sure, she might have known not to talk to strangers. But we have to think like her. She was upset that day, and she was walking home from school when she didn't want to. She wasn't getting the sleepover with her friend that she had hoped for. And there was this nice man offering to take her home. Because that's what we're all thinking about here, right? I mean, come on. We know that Van saw her, and the driver likely talked to her after school when she went to Richard's Market, but before she called mom. And then we know that the van caught up again with her after she hung around school before starting her walk home, finally leaving the school grounds. But then also, what about earlier in the day, between her class periods two and three? Because that was the first time that Linda walked over to the store. Could this piece of shit have been driving around, scoping out the area the whole time? We don't know. But we do know that she interacted with the driver of a turquoise van two times. While she was alone, off school property, and the next morning she was found killed. And that is all we get as far as news coverage and theories go all the way up until 2018. The only thing in between that I could find it was a blurb in 1988 from the LA Times that summarizes the case. But this was key because this is the time where they actually admit that Linda had been sexually assaulted. Because back in the day, they did not want to admit that. And we've seen that in other cases here on the podcast. But that does not mean that the police department didn't care or didn't acknowledge her assault and her murder. Throughout the years, the Newport Beach Police Department precinct kept a special place on the wall for a framed portrait of Linda. It was a daily reminder to not give up on the search for her killer so he could be brought to justice. And as time passed and DNA technology evolved and CODIS was born, the suspect DNA in Linda's case was run through CODIS many, many times, but a hit just never came back from the search. And this was discouraging because if this was a stranger abduction, and there was not going to be any new evidence or leads to follow after 10, 20, 30 years. And if this guy was never picked up for another crime requiring that so important cheek swab and his ticket into the CODIS database, then how was this case ever going to be solved? Finally, when we're approaching the 45th anniversary of Linda's murder in 2018, the police do come up with a novel plan. Tell Linda's story, as it is currently known, on Twitter on the day she went missing. Maybe this will humanize her story, they're thinking. This crime took place so long ago. Maybe people don't know about it or remember it. They don't remember the details. Maybe they don't remember who the possible suspect was, whatever that sketch looked like. Maybe people don't feel the urgency to come forward anymore because it's been, hello, 45 fucking years. But you see, right around when the police department is putting this together for Twitter, this Twitter campaign, Twitter blast, whatever you want to call it, they also reach out to Parabon Nanolabs. Yes, it's Parabon this time. And they send over some of the DNA evidence left at the crime scene, hoping to get a phenotype composite of the piece of shit that killed Linda. So this is the plan. 
get the public's interest piqued and reminded about the case again using the hashtag Linda's story. And while everyone is starting to talk about the case again, release the phenotype from Parabon. And then we can hope that someone finally decides to come forward and tell their story. Maybe they know the guy. Maybe he had a blue van. Maybe he lived in the area. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for the Linda story Twitter feed that the police department put up for those two days. So if you want to read through it and see additional pictures from the case, there it is for you. It's going to be in the show notes on the website. And in case some of us aren't sure what a phenotype is, it's just a digital rendering of a possible suspect. It's made from the information about our physical features that are found in our DNA. So it can kind of look like a witness's police sketch, but it will, in my opinion, always look like the real person once their identity is found out. It can account for a person's weight, clearly dyed hair, facial scars, or any of that stuff. But it can predict eye color, skin tone, bone structure, and even if you have freckles. It's crazy. It's Technology is incredible. <laughs> and so that was the summer of 2018. But it wouldn't be until the beginning of 2019 that law enforcement would finally get something from the evidence that would get them closer to finding Linda's killer. In January of 19, Parabon helped the Newport Beach police narrow in on a possible name of a suspect based on their genealogy research using the suspect DNA profile. This suspect was currently living out of state over in Colorado Springs. So detectives hop in the car and drive over to Colorado, or more likely, they fly because it's a 16-hour drive. This guy is surveilled. At some point, he discards something. The district attorney, Todd Spitzer, he's not going to release any details about what they got. And at some point, whatever it was that he dropped, they picked up, and this suspect's abandoned DNA was compared to the semen found at the crime scene so many, so many years ago. And it's a match. And on February 20th, 2019, the Newport Beach Police Department and the Orange County Sheriff's Department announced the arrest of James Allen Neal for the abduction, rape, and murder of Linda Ann O'Keefe 45 years prior. So who is James Allen Neal? Who is this piece of shit this time? James Allen Neal came into being in Florida sometime after 1973. This was after Linda's murder. At that time in 1973, he was still going by his birth name, James Allen George Layton Jr. James Layton Jr. was born on July 28, 1946 in Chicago. And over the years, he did have a handful of other aliases. He would go by James Albert Lighton, Alan George Gilstrap, I don't know, and James Albert until ultimately deciding on James Allen Neal. When piece of shit Layton, or Neal, I guess we have to call him since that's what the press calls him and I don't want to confuse us here, although seriously, fuck him, I'm going to tell you now, he changes his name because he keeps getting sent to prison, so... As far as I'm concerned, he's always going to be James Layton Jr. because that's really what was in his heart. Much like the opposite of John Proctor in The Crucible where he screams out, it's my name, I need my name. No, that's not what we have here. Anywho, piece of shit Layton, Neil, sorry, as we said, was born in Chicago. He was one of three kids and he had a sister and a brother. 
and the family would move to Orange County, California when he was around nine years old. Now, something wasn't going right in that family, or maybe it was just something not going right in his own head, but Neil's first arrest would be when he was just 13 years old, and this was for a burglary. So we clearly have a delinquent minor on our hands here. Now, prior to dropping out of high school at age 17, Neil was arrested a total of three times for burglary and other minor offenses. So he's got nothing violent just yet. Um, He would work odd jobs as a young adult, and he just couldn't keep his sticky fingers to himself and would actually rob the very gas station that he worked for in 1964, which got him an official nine months in jail while he was 18 years old. Okay, so... Have you ever had like a puppy or a kitten that you're trying to hold still for whatever reason, like you're trying to stick them in a bath or put a collar on them or something, and and the animal just keeps slipping from your grasp and you have to just keep grabbing them and pulling them back? That's this guy. So try to keep up because he's going to be slipping from state to state and court to court for the next 10 years. Not deterred by his first prison sentence, once he gets out of jail for the burglary he commits at 18 years old, Neil hopped from job to job again, and then the very next year tried to tip police off about a burglary that they were investigating. They quickly determined, however, that he was one of the perpetrators that they were looking for. So that wasn't too smart on him because he's an idiot and he ratted himself out. He spent some more time in jail for that offense, and after that, decided to just pick up and leave California altogether. I mean, I, I guess I would do the same thing if I was intent on robbing people and places and police just keep figuring out it's me, I would probably pick up and move too. just try to find a jurisdiction that's not going to zero in on me. All right. I mean, I'm just trying to live my best B&E life over here and the damn cops just keep getting in my way and tossing my ass in jail. I can't keep I can't keep doing what I'm trying to do. Jeez. At that point, Neil was pushing 20 years old and per one of his probation officers reports, we get some insight into his thinking or his personality. Quote, he was emotionally immature and psychologically unstable. He has not been able to relate well with other students, family members, or inmates of institutions, unquote. And Neil does acknowledge his social issues at this time and even his bad family relationships. And he claims he's not getting along with his siblings because he was such a rebellious asshole to their parents. Okay. No excuse or no reasoning why he's being such a dick, but there you have it. In this probation report, Neil says that he knows that he has to get his ass in gear, and he thinks that maybe if he just if he just finishes training to become a dental assistant, then he can make enough money to get the psychiatric treatment he needs. I mean, what do you say to that? <laughs> Moving on. So when he leaves California, he jumps around from Ohio, he goes to Kentucky, then he goes back down and over to Colorado. And at this point, we're in the summer of 1966, and Linda is four years old, and he's suspected again for stealing from a gas station job. Like, what the fuck, dude? Just after that theft, he skipped town again, but police found him over in Utah and hauled him back to Denver to face charges. Things didn't go as planned at trial, and in the end, they had a hung jury, but they were able to sentence him to probation, and they assigned him to the Mountain Parks Work Project. Neil realized soon enough, though, that there's not money to steal in park maintenance, so he skips town again. And again, police hunt him down, this time in Oklahoma. This is, yes, this is a fucking farce, and they bring him back again. But this time, he's on the run from the criminal justice system. 
and he's not just running to avoid charges being filed against him. He escapes again, my God, but they hunt him down again. And this time he was able to get all the way up north. He went all the way into Canada, all the way up to the Yukon Territory. And that's the province along the northern part of Canada. Like, like it, that's, a, that's the part of Canada that touches Alaska. This piece of shit. Like, dude, knock it the fuck off and chill out. Get your head on straight. Finally, because now it's not just the thefts that he's in trouble for, it's also escaping police custody. Piece of shit Neil was sentenced to three to ten years in a Colorado state prison. And he was able to hold tight for three years. Right there, stayed right where he was supposed to stay, for fuck's sake. And he was released on parole in the summer of 1971. And then he managed to stay out of trouble for the time being. He moved back into California, back by his parents in Orange County. And two summers later, Linda was abducted, raped, and murdered. Within a few months, Neil decides that he's, he's just done with the western part of the United States. And he checks on over and down to Florida. And by September of 73, just three months after Linda was killed, he was arrested again. Now, it's unclear what this is for, but he then like tells his parole officer to fuck off. He gets in trouble on parole, and then he gets himself an extended parole term and is officially let off of parole in 1977. Something is going on here. We don't know what it was that he was in trouble for down in Florida, but all this time he was, going by, he was still going by his birth name, James Layton Jr., in the court system at least. Maybe it's the other aliases when he was on the streets, but... After this, this is when he decides to officially change his name to James Allen Neal. And I do wonder, like, is this even allowed at this point? Like, can convicted criminals get permission to change their names? I mean, I guess so, back in the 70s. And now by the end of 1977, James Neal ties the knot. So I guess he's ready to settle down. And maybe it was the love of a good woman that did it, because that's actually kind of what he does. He and his wife raise four daughters. Yes, daughters. Can you imagine? And the family spent most of the years between 1977 and 2015 in California. And they owned a construction business aptly named James Neal Construction. Of course they did, because this guy has been able to live in plain sight all this time. In 2014, the business fails and Neal and his wife file for bankruptcy. They're listing Social Security benefits as their sole source of income. And supposedly, James himself had some kind of chronic medical condition. We don't know what it was. After all of that was taken care of with the, bank, with the bankruptcy uh, paperwork and proceedings, they decide to move over to Colorado, and they've been living in Colorado Springs ever since. And that is where the Colorado Springs the Police Department picked him up as a favor to the California police when they picked him up in February of 19. So, yeah, by the time of his arrest, piece of shit, James Neal had been married to the same woman. Can you believe it? The same woman for 41 years, had four grown daughters, 15 grandchildren, and 11 great-grandchildren. I am sure, just like we've seen from other family members of other convicted or discovered perpetrators of these horrible crimes, that their memories do not align with what the world now knows their, their family member committed. But it's just, it's got to be horrible. The pain and the confusion that they must be going through these last few years is, is just unimaginable. I mean, can you imagine you're in college, you're young, you walk in the door one day, you just got home from class and your mom tells you that grandpa has been arrested for the rape and murder of an 11 year old girl back in 1973. 
like, what? What the fuck are you talking about, mom? Or maybe it's your dad or your father-in-law. And it could be your husband. The husband you raised children with, you ran a company with, and you've, you've been with this man longer in your life than you weren't with him. It can't be easy. It can't be an easy burden to carry, no matter whether the family believes these charges or not. But we do have to hope for nothing but peace and a lack of reconciliation coming their way. James Neal pled not guilty to the charges. Oh, and uh, sorry, I've got to put this in there. Also, two counts of sexually molesting two other minor females, one in 1995 and one in 2000. Both were just one county over from where he lived back in the day and where the O'Keefe's lived. I only mention it now because Neil wasn't charged with these other girls' cases until this arrest for Linda. I'm wondering if that means, though, that these three cases were actually matched in CODIS all this time, being that the unknown suspect in the CODIS system was the same for all three crimes, but there was never ever a name to put to the, the, the asshole that did it. But thankfully, like we've always say, Parabon was able to finally finally get that name for us. Ultimately, we would not get our day in court, and he would not admit to killing Linda or to the other molestations. Piece of shit, Neil died on May 25th, 2020, just last year, of an undisclosed medical event. We are told he did not have symptoms relating to COVID, and that's all we've got. He spent 15 years pending trial for the murder of Linda Ann O'Keefe and his crimes against the two other girls, and we hope that they were rough, and we hope his death was painful. So do we think he's got other victims? This is a hard one because he wasn't, for, ten, for, for the first 10 years of his adult life, he really was like a petty criminal. He, was, he, he, burglar, he burglarized, he stole from the, his employers, but he wasn't violent from what we could tell in, in, the, in the arrests. His first violent offense was with Linda. And then that was in 73, and we don't know anything along those lines, along the, that type of crime until until 1995. And then again, five years later in 2000. And those are the ones that we know about. Yes. Yeah, so it's very possible that he could have been doing this all this time. Although I don't know if that's really the case because I'm going to say no, at least until 95, maybe some more right before and, and up until 2000, maybe a little after 2000. But if he was doing it for the last 45, 46 years since Linda, there's got, there would have been more because the odds are that there would have been more reports of those attacks. We don't know if these girls were close to him as like, as far as like acquaintances, you know, family, friends or anything like that. We don't know if he knew these girls or if they were, I hate to say it, but you know, pick them up somewhere off the street. If it was a stranger on stranger um, offense with these two other girls, like it was with Linda. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go on the side of possibly not, or at least not as many as we've seen in the past, Bruce Lindahl and Robert Brashears. But yeah, I wonder what you think. Do you think there's other victims out there? Probably at least one or two that just didn't report it at the time. What do we think about whether or not this crime would have ever been solved without our genealogy investigation and our genealogists? Bless them. No, absolutely not. Get the fuck out of here. There's no way it would have been solved. <laughs> absolutely not. No witnesses, no one coming forward, hopping from state to state, getting himself around people who have no idea about what happened to Linda back in the day, you know, back in Orange County, California, back in 1973. So he's not around people who would even know about the murder that he would, 
that would even suspect him for it. There's absolutely no way. Thank God we've got our genealogist, though, and they were able to zero in on a name. And I guess that's it. Um, we are going to give our closing tribute to Linda's sister, Cindy Borgeson. She tells us, quote, Linda would have been 57 this year. I wonder sometimes what kind of life she would have had. Would she be married, have a family? Probably. But I don't dwell on that because that wasn't her outcome. She just had this spirituality to her that's hard to put into words. And I know in my heart that Linda was in heaven celebrating with our parents when they arrested him. Cindy's also asked about what she would say to families who have unresolved missing or, or murdered loved ones, seeing as how her sister's case was solved using a different type of approach. Cindy tells us, quote, my hope is that it brings hope to other families who haven't had theirs resolved yet, unquote. And that is the case of the 1973 abduction, rape, and murder of 11-year-old Linda Ann O'Keefe. there you have it. One thing that is odd about Neil is he seems to be living a life of crime pretty much, you know, what, as soon as he turned 13 all the way up until uh, 1977, a few years after he had killed Linda. But then he got married and he pretty much went quiet. And then up until, up until maybe 1995, when we have his other child molestation case. So that's uh, about, what, 18 years of nothing? Do we think maybe it really was the love of a good woman? I really don't know how else to explain it. Uh, we usually we see serial offenders or we see, you know, perpetrators that are pretty much just like a one and done type of type of um, type of criminal. And this one is very weird because he was definitely a serial offender as far as the burglary and, the, you know, escaping jail and and then Linda's attack. And then he was like pretty much quiet after that for for so long. Maybe because he was raising his own kids. I don't know. It's very weird. So for this week's Could We, Should We, Can We, Will We, we have the death of Laura Maria Carrillo, a 24-year-old mother over in San Bernardino, California, which is a, another county over in that area. This is published by the San Bernardino County Sun on March 15th of 1990. So I'm not going to read the whole article. I'll cut some out. And here we go. Quote. A woman who was found shot to death in Mount Baldy Village last week has been identified as Laura Maria Carrillo, a 24-year-old mother of two, sheriff's officials said Wednesday. Family members identified the body after San Bernardino and Riverside County Sheriff's investigators linked the Moreno Valley woman to a missing persons report, officials said. My sister was very talkative, a funny personality, very pretty, said Patricia Carrillo, 29, of Riverside. We all grew up together. Carrillo was reported missing March 6th at the sheriff's detective, Daniel Fennerman. She had told her babysitter March 5th that she was going to visit her boyfriend in Los Angeles and that she would be back for her four-year-old girl and two-year-old boy later that evening, Fennerman said. So Carrillo left Los Angeles and headed home around 12.30 a.m. on March 6th. When she didn't arrive, the babysitter called Carrillo's 47-year-old mother, Olivia, who filed the missing persons report on Thursday. Carrillo's red 1978 Honda Accord was spotted March 6th by the California Highway Patrol officer. The officer tagged it because the car was parked on the eastbound Highway 60 near Country Club Village Drive exit in Glen Avon. 
Highway Patrol officers towed it the next day, he said, and after Riverside investigators learned that the car's owner was missing and that unidentified body was found in Mount Baldy Village, they contacted San Bernardino County Sheriff's detectives. As of late Wednesday, investigators said they still have no clues as to the mystery of how Carrillo's body ended up in a gully next to the parking lot of Snowcrest Lodge, where two Mount Baldy Village residents found the victim last Thursday. Quote, we don't know what happened. Investigators believe the car may have had mechanical problems. Emergency flashers may have been on, unquote. Detectives questioned Carrillo's boyfriend, whose name has been withheld, but they don't believe that he is a suspect. He said the detectives also haven't determined whether Carrillo was a sexual assault victim. They are awaiting the coroner's autopsy report, which should arrive in six weeks. The initial autopsy showed that Carrillo died of several gunshot wounds to the head, said Deputy Coroner Tom Dewhurst. We are requesting anyone who may have been traveling in the area of Highway 60 on March 6th between the early hours of 1.30 a.m. and 8 a.m. to call us if they have any, had any contact with the victim or notice anyone around the victim's vehicle. Carrillo's death has left her family searching for answers. Her sister Patricia says she was going to be gone for a few hours. We don't know how she got up there. I want them to catch someone that they don't do this to other people, unquote. Now, I picked this case because, yes, we don't know if she was sexually assaulted, but we do know that oftentimes the media will not disclose everything. And of course, I did look for a follow-up article to see if there was results that came back in the autopsy, but they decided not to print them. But if we have a lady whose car is disabled on the highway very late at night in the middle of the night and someone stops to help her and then she is taken away and she is eventually found dead miles away, what do we think happened to her? So we'll just leave it at that. Here's hoping that there was some kind of um, seminal fluid evidence that was taken and and that they will reopen the case if they haven't already. So there you have it. We have a very long episode this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Linda's was a crazy story, and um, I am glad that we were able to get as much information as we could to bring her to you. And we will see each other next time. In the meantime, you can find me on the socials and on the website for the photographs, links, and the script. And I will see you next time. Bye.